what is there to direct without actors and writers and, and a crew and a, you know, like your DP and your production designer and your editor and your costume designer. Like it's such a, and the, and the composer, like such a collaborative art that none of these things work without the other, you know, and, and each of them have to come together to support one vision. And I think that's the director's job is like pulling together everybody to be like, hey, everyone come do your best work to help this little thing take off. Hello, hello. Welcome to Tuckered Out with me, Ami Tucker. Okay, guys. So I've decided my next guest and I are definitely cousins. Okay, so I know I say that a lot, but for reals, I mean it this time. I mean, because you'll hear it at the end of the episode, but we are actually going to start a business together. It's going to happen, guys. Nisha Ganathra is a Canadian-American film director, screenwriter, producer, and actress of Indian descent, and, of course, is also my now new cousin. I first got to know her after watching Chutney Popcorn back in 99, which she wrote, directed, and produced herself. Ganatra has directed numerous television shows, including Transparent, You, Me, Her, Better Things, and Brooklyn Nine-Nine. She also directed the comedy dramas Late Night and The High Note. She is the founder of Ladies Car Production. And, you know, it's just an overall badass with such an amazing 25-year journey working in Hollywood. Guess what, guys? She is just ramping it up. I hope you guys enjoy my interview with Nisha Ganatra, a.k.a. my cousin. So I met you at Sundance, February 2023. You had actually directed, I think, and produced Rise in collaboration with Reese Witherspoon's production company and Rupi Kaur was a narrator. And Rise was a short film about gender inequality in the labor force. And you also showcased stories of these three women who launched their own companies. I had come as a guest with Stacy's. So that was the first time I officially met you, I guess, and saw the film. And of course, yeah, like I said, Ruby Core was narrating. What an experience just watching the film and being an audience member. How was that for you? Because I never got to talk to you about it. I should say she wasn't narrating. She wrote the poetry too. Like, so she, she was the poetry. The, yeah, she was the writer. I mean, she wrote the only dialogue, I think, because that was the only the voiceover. So she wrote it and then she also performed it, which was key with Ruby. Like you you want her performing her own words. That is that's when you're in the zone with her. <laughs> yes, no kidding. How was putting that film together and how did that happen? It was really it's so funny. I haven't talked about this film, I guess. Ruby so they approached uh, the company I work with, um Ventureland, was doing a project with Stacy's for this program, they have this founders program where they like, you know, I didn't even know Stacy was a real person. Like I just thought, isn't it cool? It's actually Stacy's. And she's this badass woman that like puts money from her success back into helping launch other women. So their companies and their dreams. So they had like 50 founders and they basically came with this really loose idea of we want to do a film, but we don't want to do the typical talking head documentary. Whenever we do that, it looks like a corporate video. And I was like, oh, good, because I don't know how to do that. And then I started reading about the founders and was looking at their stories and then kind of pitched them this idea about, because something I noticed when every single one of them I read 
was saying that their inspiration came from their mothers or their grandmothers or their like origins. And so I sort of was like, what if we put together a thing like, you know, roots and the focus of it will be roots and it will be all about like how the sacrifices are generations before us gave, like allows us to sort of stand on the shoulders and dream big and do these things. And so it kind of was evolved from that. And then they were like, oh, we really love this. Like they were really open to do whatever you want, you know? And so I kind of, we we were limited in budget by not being able to include all of them. So that was the only thing that kind of was a bit of a bummer because some people were, I mean, all of them had really compelling stories, but we just couldn't fly all around the country and film everybody. So, um, which is why I did that photo montage at the end to kind of fit in all the founders because it was literally these three women who were in proximity so we could get three stories and not have to spend a bunch of travel. <laughs> yeah, no, I was crying. Like it was very quite powerful. I don't know if I got to tell you that there, but it was very impactful. I haven't seen womb stories yet. I mean, you know, of course I was doing my research on you and <laughs> I was like, okay, they always in articles, uh, Wikipedia, they always say these things put her on the map or these are the highlights for her career. And I want to know if you agree with this. And so from what I read, obviously you've done, directed and produced many things. You've also acted. But my summary of your of what put you on the map, and I'm putting this on quotes, room stories, transparent, and late night were the bigger successes. Again, I'm quoting everything because success is something different for you. I want to see one, if that feels right to you. And then also, obviously, I've heard about you initially with Chutney Popcorn, as many yeah. of us have, <laughs> many of us have. And I know that was your debut and you didn't have the budget. And it was kind of like your friends all got together, you did it. And it's probably this <laughs> wonderful, amazing, memorable experience. And it feels like the movie is kind of a cult classic now. So <laughs> from there, which was like, what, 25 years ago that you made this? No, trip? it was, oh my God, when did it come out? 20, 2000. So, oh my God, yeah, probably almost. Yeah, yeah. Round, rounding it up like a good Indian does. Yeah, 20, 25 right. years. <laughs> Do you think the articles and, and the press, and that's a correct correct way of defining what's put you on the map, I guess? And then how do those successes feel compared to your experience with Chutney Popcorn? Yeah, it's so interesting that we're talking today because last week they showed um, Chutney Popcorn at USC and I went and talked to like, you know, undergrads who are watching this movie. They weren't even born when I made the movie. Which is yeah. So yeah. <laughs> I was like, oh, Jesus. Um, <laughs> we're, not, we're not aging at all. It's fine. No. Yes. No, I was like, why haven't I? Oh, you were not. Okay, okay great. Uh, thank you for coming and watching this. But it was interesting because I drove home and I was thinking about how the question of like what endures, right? Like we make right. a we make this movie and we we tell our stories and we put together our art and we don't think about like we don't think about twenty years from now, right? Like it's, it's not even a reality when you're also that young. You're just like I'll never be that old. That's weird and and who knows that? And so. Like, even when I made Chani Pepper, I was like, this is so funny because I'm never going to have kids. I'm like, <laughs> literally sitting in my daughter's crazy bedroom. <laughs> I mean, it is fun. It's a fun bedroom. I like it. You never thought you'd be sitting in front of, like, white and pink stripes, right? Yeah, yeah. White. <laughs> I know. And, of course, it's, like, the girliest girl. <laughs> but, it. yeah, I think it's kind of, 
it's interesting because I really think when I was watching it this week, I was like, wow, Nisha, like you have to get back to your indie film, like roots, because that's like, that's what endures ultimately, you know? And so, yeah, I do, I do agree with, I mean, it took me a long time to think of Chutney Popcorn as a success. And I think it's because every, you know, I had classmates at NYU who were making their films, debuting at Sundance and getting three picture deals. And everybody was sort of launching into the industry. And I was still like, it didn't, it launched me in many ways, but it didn't like get me the Hollywood assignment or the Hollywood right, the check mark success. Yeah. It didn't really do that. And I was sort of like, chasing that I think for a really long time maybe until last week (laughs) (laughs) maybe till this interview (laughs) you know I think late night definitely did the thing that you know there's so many movies at Sundance and I've gone for so long and there's always that one one or two movies that break out it's really hard to be the movie that gets the attention, gets the sale, does it, right. and it's under zero control of the filmmaker. Like, you know, everyone's out there with their postcards and their hats and their things like trying to beg people to come to the thing. And now it's gotten a lot more fancy. Now it's like, you know, places right. and the, the walk up Main Street of all the interviews. Yep. And that, that wasn't how it was, right? When we, like, Chutney Popcorn Days, it was like, it was not, it was like literally po- printing postcards and begging people to come and like, yeah, you have like, you're holding up like your own posters and shit. Yeah. You're holding like, you don't have <laughs> yeah. a poster because nobody can yeah. afford to print it. You know, like, you're just like, please come to my marriage. Yeah. I'll <laughs> buy you a drink, please. Yeah. Exactly. It was just uh, like, uh. you know, all that kind of vibe. So it was interesting. Like I remember the feeling when late night premiered and, and the, the sale, like the record sale happened until it was like broken four days later or whatever. But like it had that moment where I was walking down Main Street and I was like, oh my God, it's yeah. it's my film. This is, the our film's the one that's getting all the attention at the festival. And it's, you have no, you know, ability to foresee that. I mean, Mindy, who's such an amazing businesswoman and has always had a pretty charmed career, I think, because she works so freaking hard was like, didn't have any sort of context for it. Like, was just kind of like, yeah, of course, everything I touch is you know? <laughs> I like, love that. I don't like, even know her and I can I like, I'm like, yeah, I can imagine her saying that. No, I don't. I mean, she didn't say no, that. No, in the best way. The, in the best that way. That was the vibe I was getting. Of like, I was like, do you? And I was just like, whoa, this is a totally different experience. And you in your mind are like, okay, stay calm. I'm cool. I'm cool. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I was so not cool. I was just like, amazing. <laughs> but I wonder, you know, because you're, you, at that moment, like you said, walking down the street, like thinking, holy shit, this is my film. And I've been talking to a lot of creators about the concept of arrival fallacy, meaning you have you think when you get to a certain place, do a certain project, and it happens, you'll reach that point of happiness or feel like I've succeeded or have that satisfaction that you thought you would have. Did you have that or was it different for you? No, I totally had that. <laughs> okay, good, good. I like it. <laughs> I love I mean, it. That's awesome. What's so tricky is you have it and then it moves, right? Then you the experience of having it moves the bar. So then, right. then it's the next like, thing. Oh, shit, I had it. And now it's good. And now I got to get about, you know, so maybe that's what they're defining is not having it. But, you know, that's also just our like Indian childhood of like the bar of achievement was always moving so that you were 
like what's interesting to me is this idea of like I always thought that's why I'm ambitious and that's why I work hard and that's but now there are all these studies that are like showing that that feeling that you're constantly not achieving or failing it turns out like we would have achieved what we would have achieved anyway we just wouldn't feel so bad all the time yeah what no like i was working hard because i was chasing that you know and it's like no you were feeling bad while you were working hard because you were chasing that instead of you would have just chased that anyway or you would have just worked hard anyway you know i don't know i'm I still don't quite believe it because it was such a pervasive lie. I think our generation was told. Totally. I'm still having a hard time believing it was a lie. So I just got this book called, They Called Us Exceptional and Other Lies. And it's by Prati Gupta. Yes. And um, I'm afraid to read it. I have it. (laughs) I want to know it, but I don't because I'm like, oh, Prati's going to fucking, like, she's going to destroy my whole fake world that I've built my assumptions on she's gonna force us into therapy i mean how much more therapy can i do i do therapy so much and it it has saved my life literally but she um yeah i was like oh this title oh yeah yeah can i I just pass this on to my nine-year-old here you go (laughs) yeah like how do i not do that to her but also like it works sort of so maybe we do do that i don't know i have not interviewed her thank god but she is on the list so okay i feel better Woo. When you interview her, please text me because I won't watch it. No, no, definitely. You know, and I I mean, God, we can dive into this. But, you know, really quickly before I move on, I feel like this podcast, by the way, is my has been my therapy. I didn't even know it till 130 episodes in. I was like, wow, I'm finding out a lot about myself. Or wow, am I angry? (laughs) Or like so much has come out of this. And I'm like, maybe I'm just doing this podcast for myself. I started it, honestly, the podcast, because husband's job, two kids under three. Literally, I felt like I had no voice. So let me put a mic in front of my fucking mouth and go insane. And literally, that's why I started out of desperation to find myself, really. Did not think anything of it. Like, I was like, no one's going to listen to this, whatever. But yeah, I was like, wow, I just gave myself two and a half years of free therapy. This is great. (laughs) It's amazing. Because connecting with all you guys and sharing our stories really has been eye-opening. I'm like, okay, this is what I've needed growing up, but we never had that, right? None, at least in our generation, we never had it. And so it's I mean, something I think did, I've been looking it. for. We had to go search for it. And there were like three voices, you know, and now it's, there are more, the mainstream is still only amplifying three voices, but like, at least we have other means now and ways to, to reach each other. I mean, I was just talking to Rishi Roy, who launched Avrani and then the Lily Singh um, collaboration. We're talking about dating and growing up dating because I've had such a not traumatic, but I definitely have. I just have really entertaining stories of myself dating growing up, which included not much. But we're talking about how neither of us were allowed to shave until we were like 16. And I was like. Thank God. Because I was like, what? I think that that has affected me. for, And I, I didn't get asked to prom. I mean, all sorts of shit happened to me, Nisha. And I was like, okay, I wasn't the only one here. It's good. Oh my God. I'm still like, what do you mean? Date? We weren't allowed to date. How are you dating? I know. That, I mean, that's mainly what, it, what comes out of it. Rishi actually was cool and she had boyfriends. I was like, yeah, I went to prom with a guy that was married. 
So I know. I was like, I can't talk to you. I just was at that collab and got those products. They are really good. Yeah, I know. I was like, Lily's got some hair. So (laughs) yeah, I was like, amongst many things. So that's a good collaboration right there. (laughs) But anyways, back to therapy and book. Yes, I think the arrival fallacy, like you said, is something that's part of our DNA. And I've actually you know, you're obviously on a much greater scale in terms of what success looks like for film and TV. For the podcast, for me, I've actually, this is my third year doing it, and I'm finally switching gears on how I look at it now. And maybe it's with age and just appreciation for life in general. I'm like, you know what? Maybe I don't have the 100,000 downloads, but guess what? I have this many people listening to me every month, taking their time out to listen to me. Whatever happens with this, this is amazing. And I kind of switched the whole gear on it. And I'm like, it's success. It's, I'm happy doing it. And I think it's hokey, but it's so true. You know, and I, I took off that pressure, right? Why would you say it's hokey? <laughs> well, I think, you know, you're obviously in TV and film, but like, I think for podcasters, the next step, you know, what's the next step? Getting to those downloads and then getting picked up by a network or getting that pitch. You know, there's always the next, right? And so that's it's kind of in all creative spaces, that's what it's going to be. And I just, I was in that kind of cycle for the almost three years. And then all of a sudden I was like, what am I doing to myself? I love doing, would I do this for free? Yeah, like yeah. what is the measure? Why do we measure by what is the next? Why not measure by how do I feel about the work I'm doing? You yeah. know, I would talk to you no matter what. I would love to sit down and talk to you no matter yeah. what happens, even if it's just, <laughs> just me and you listening. And so it's kind of a nice shift. And I do think it comes with a little bit of age and maturity and just Shanti. <laughs> for sure. Oh my God, for sure. Yeah, yeah. for sure. Okay. I got, yeah, obviously. So I'd say those are accurate. And then I would say transparent was accurate because it was the first TV thing I did. And I had been trying to break into TV for like, many years and nobody would give me a chance to direct an episode of anything and it was always like you know even when that show outsource came out i was like i'm indian can i direct it and they're like mom maybe if we get a back nine was always this thing i heard and i was like what are I? well you can come shadow and i was like i will shadow whatever you know and it just like never ever ever could i get anyone to take a chance. And so when after Transparent, it was so interesting because those shows that would not even meet me or said the next step would be for me to shadow, they all of a sudden were like calling and offering me episodes. And I was like, nothing's changed. Like literally, it was interesting. Like I was like, really? They're just going to offer me an episode? I don't even have to meet them? And they're like, yeah. So that that was just because of the success of Transparent and our business industry that is so risk averse that they think that, okay, well, I could give that girl a job because if she fails, I'll be like, but she came from this show. How would I know? You know, everyone, it's interesting, like how people in such an important industry that like is responsible for leading and, and shaping culture, how it got to this point where people are making decisions from fear and covering their ass is so disappointing. Like it's such a, it's such the weirdest thing when you look at the shows that were on in like the 70s, 80s, the 90s, and they were more radical, more interesting, more risk-taking, more um, complex than things that are on TV. After that, that's like, that's not a good sign for our country. And our Why society. did that happen though? Why, how did that shift to fear? I mean, I don't 
know enough. I'm asking people who were here before me because I came in late. But from what I understand, a lot of it has to do with corporations buying the studios and then becoming like part of a giant corporation. Like I remember when, like there was a moment with Chutney Popcorn where we were like, maybe Sony Pictures Classics will release this movie. And we were just like, hoping and praying that the the person in charge of acquisitions from this company would come to a screening, right? That's how you had to do it. You had to send them letters and postcards and hope they would like come. And so I remember we finally got a letter from like the person at Sony Pictures Classics and they were like, we didn't make it to your screening, but we would like to watch your film. Please come drop off a DVD or please like tell us, you know, how to arrange a screening. And I remember being like, okay, I was in New York. I was like, I'm just going to go up to their address and I'm going to drop it off because we couldn't afford to like mail it. So I like had my little like, you know, tape and like was walking, like took the subway up to 50th, got out and saw like this giant Sony building. And to me, Sony Pictures Classics was the top of the top, the biggest fucking thing, the highest thing, right? When I get there, I have to walk through a lobby of PlayStation, which is a Sony toy. And I was like, Oh, okay. Everyone's here for place. It's just PlayStation. And then I go up to the top and they're like, you know, Sony makes all these TVs. Sony makes VCRs. Sony makes DVD players. Sony makes Blu-ray. Sony they're like makes- Goliath. They're like huge. Yes, but, like you don't think of this when you're a small indie filmmaker being like, Sony Pictures Classics was on the like three offices in the corner of their most neglected floor, like around <laughs> the corner, down the stairs, like in the fucking like basement with nobody there. It was like Obviously, they didn't care. Yeah. Like, You're like, can I get a job here? Like, what's happening? Yeah, it was like the most important part of Sony to me was that. And I didn't even think about it. So long in Columbia, TriStar. Like, you don't even think, like, your world is so indie film small that you're like, here are the seven distributors. And one of them hopefully will like this. And I remember just when I walked out of there, I was like, oh, my God, Sony Pictures Classics is like this little crop in the Sony building of life. Like, you know, I, that was before I even moved to LA and realized they have a whole studio lot and there's a like Right, right, right. I kind of equate to like, when you go back to your childhood home or neighborhood and realize, oh, wow, that street was smaller than I thought. Or like, was that my house? I don't know. Just like going yeah, and reflecting back. And, be like, like, and then you go back and you're like, oh, this is like. I used to think my bike ride from home to school was like eight miles. It was point <laughs> two. I was like, huh, I wasn't as badass as I thought. Okay. But yeah. anyways, just equating it to that. Yes. Totally funny. Yeah. So I don't know. I think it's that. And then, you know, I just did a project with Norman Lear. Okay. And he, like they were telling us about how executives used to never give notes. Like they weren't creative executives they wouldn't um, they wouldn't come in and give you notes on your script or notes on the story or try to guide the the creator in any way they would just come and tell you what products they were selling during the commercial breaks of your show and i was like when did all this shift to like everybody trying to shape the creative vision of something and it's so interesting that when when they don't like when someone some outlier like at the time Amazon comes along and just says here's carte blanche do what you want or HBO like built their reputation on just filmmaker visions right. that they succeed and their shows endure and when it's like everybody chipping in like my note my note my note my note and how those things kind of you know don't like like notes can be great and I think like 
But it stifles the project, the process, right? It stifles it, it slows it down. Like, right? I mean, we only, the thing on Transparent, we were getting our notes from one or two people the whole okay. time. So it wasn't like the staff of people and then this staff of people and then this staff of people. It's kind of, I don't know. I don't know how things break through that, but, you know, right. I'm still learning. Like, so. so then I'm curious from that because you are our director. How do you approach actors with notes? Like, do you let them do their ah, thing? Yeah, that's a good point, yeah. Right? What is your process or way of directing? It's really interesting. I think when I first started, I knew how I wanted it. I had it in my head, how I how I wanted it to sound, what the rhythm I wanted it to be, and what feelings I wanted to evoke. And I would try my best to guide the actor there. And now as I've gotten more experienced, I'm a little more open to, you still have in your head how things go, especially comedy, like the timing has to be right. Otherwise it's just not going to fly. So, but I'm so much more open to what is this person bringing and what is their energy and what's their take and what's their, you know, and I'll always like get it the way the actor is trying to express it and then like get another version and then get another version, you know, because I've always been super aware of how collaborative our art is, you know, and I think a lot of people say they're collaborative, <laughs> but they don't really get that you're not this vision of the director being the like, you know, like the person and the, and, and you are in many ways, like it's all of the glory and all of the responsibility and all of the shame as well. Right. Like when they everything, say, yeah, yeah. You get it right? all. Right. On you. But on the other hand, like what is there to direct without actors and right. writers and, and a crew and a, you know, like your DP and your production designer and your editor and your costume designer, like it's such a, and the, and the composer, like such a collaborative art that, None of these things work without the other, you know, yeah. and, and each of them have to come together to support one vision. And I right. think that's the director's job is like pulling together everybody to be like, hey, everyone come do your best work to help this little thing take off. You know, kind of like the quarterback, maybe I'm trying to think of a analogy, but like, you know, <laughs> you're, you're the heart of it, maybe. I don't know. But you've also done both. You've acted and directed, produced. and. I was reading on uh, good old Wikipedia because, you know, every, everything's, everything's true on there. I know you, you know, start your interest in film started with acting. You went to UCLA, but you pursued filmmaking, according to someone that wrote this, to affect cultural change. You thought you could maybe affect cultural change more through directing. But we all know actors have an important role and behind the scenes, directors, producers have an important role. You've been in both. So you tell me from your point of view, what impact do you think actors have and directors have? I don't know that any of us have impact individually. Like, I think it's all together, right? Like, what was so incredible about Womb Stories, which I think absolutely fits that that goal, is that Womb Stories not only was just like an incredibly beautiful piece of art, that everybody came together to make land and was recognized and rewarded, which is which sometimes does not go hand in hand at all. That was like incredible, that experience, but also it impacted women's health, right? So this project that was made to bring awareness to a women's health issue actually changed, like they use art from the project 
to, so there was this, you know, they were found that women, like when you go in the doctor's office, there's a pain, a pain measurement that's like zero to 10. And it's like a series of happy faces. I know. It's like the worst. I'm like, is there a middle finger in there somewhere? Because shockingly, what they found, the researcher found is that women, when they're feeling a level 10 pain, often report four, five or six. And men, when they feel a level eight pain, often report nine or 10, right? So so this pain chart was not working for women and women's health. Like it just wasn't accurate. It wasn't, you know, we don't want to be a bother. We don't want to be a burden. So this is self-reporting your pain level wasn't working. So they actually took art from the uh, Women's Stories project and made a new pain chart with it. And people are getting better diagnosis and better health care from their providers because of this piece of art that was made. Right? What was it? What's the art? So it was Women's Stories. So instead of saying, does your uterus, does your tummy hurt or does your uterus, they're like, does it feel like a monster inside of you is scraping inside? Does it feel like a goat is stamping on your uterus? Does it feel like something is stabbing you? Are you feeling like, and they took the art from the thing of like literally a goat jumping up and down on a uterus or a endo monster scraping the inside of your body. Like, and it really came to, we all kind of realized how important what we were doing could be when somebody in our editing room diagnose themselves watching the art like they were like watching what this animator had drawn and were like that's how I feel maybe I have endometriosis and got diagnosed with it and got care and we were like oh my god nobody's telling women what it feels like in different ways other than zero to ten which is so subjective so it was really so literally that if you watch it it like it's uh tells the story of five different like Whim stories and then goes on like there are companion pieces and there's pain stories and a health initiative that all go with it. That's amazing. I could have used that last week when I was out doing my annual checkup and she was like, how does this feel? I just curse. I'm like, I can't even look at your chart right now. Like, <laughs> Yeah, sucks. watch it and like freeze frame a piece that applies to you and show that to your doctor. <laughs> I should do that for the, my girls too, man. That, that's totally. amazing. I love that. Yeah, because nobody talks to them. Like nobody I know. Them. I know. It, go, that's all like you, you mentioned it too, but you know, we don't want to bother people. It goes back to our, this fucking people pleasing that's in our DNA. That's still in my forties. I still try to get rid of, you know, and I'm sure all of us are struggling with that. It's not, I mean, it's not in our DNA. You've been told by everybody and conditioned by society not to be a bother. So like, how can you get rid of it? Like when you look at your daughters, they're not born with that. They're happy to be fathers. You know what I'm saying? Like, Part of our DNA after birth, I guess. <laughs> so I was like, just a cultural DNA. I was actually just, you know, and I love my parents and I want to talk about your childhood too. Love them, lovely people, but even they are like, I mean, even sometimes my dad will be like, well, make sure you're taking care of my husband, who I love. Of course, I'll take care of him, but like it's... It's so subtle and I just, I'm realizing it more and more that, no, no, I used to think, you know, my parents, I never felt like, oh, typical Indian girl, never felt like I had to do things, but maybe I did. I just didn't even know the the subtle things that were being said. And I don't even think they knew really, you know? No, I don't think they do either. It's interesting. Like when you watch, um, you know, we're just, we're like Rocky or Ronnie is on like high replay on our, in our house right now. And it's interesting, like, it's refreshing and fun and whatever, but they're not like radical messages. Yeah. <laughs> like what's know. Gonna, you know, like don't, you don't have to serve your husband only one way is like still a message we all need is like, 
oh my God, right? Like, but, yeah. you know, by the way, I'm not saying we Indians, like I think all Generally. women, you know, like totally. American women are also being served this like bullshit of this, you know, platter of it's your responsibility to do everything for everyone, you know, it's, yep. and it's crumbling. Like it's, it it's, is it's totally impossible. So we're all crumbling and it's because yeah. you can't do it all. Yeah, <laughs> like, I know. I'm like trying to teach. I'm like, I'm not a martyr. I'm going to, nope, can't sacrifice my whole self for everyone. My girls are like, calm down, mom. <laughs> we know. But it's also hard because when you do that, when you make that that choice to shift that, the generation before, it's it takes bravery for them to support you and not feel judged. And like they wasted their life making a different choice. You know, like that's it's a hard thing to for everyone to see and accept and change. So we never win, Nisha. It's never win. There's always this either way. <laughs> God damn it. It's that Barbie monologue. That's so true. Quickly before we get into a few more questions about your your childhood and then a fun fast round. Ladies Car Production. Ladies Car, I I'm assuming the, the name Ladies Car is from the trains in India. Yeah. What's next for you guys? Because I did see some things on social media. I don't know if this is just me looking into it, but saw a picture with you and Lily Singh. I've interviewed Anita Lalian. I was like, oh, are they doing something or am I just pretending in my head? I think we're doing something. I'm waiting for the Lily's. Lily's the ultimate one who gets to say when the things are real. <laughs> okay. Okay, cool. Is there anything that you could talk about that you're working on? Oh, you know what? I'm about to go to India to direct a new show in India, which I'm really excited How about. How fun. Can you talk about it? Yeah, it's called, I wonder if it has a title yet. Right now, it's it's got a working title called The Royal Rom-Com. And uh, okay. it's, it's Amazing Women who did uh, four more shots. It's a, you know, Netflix India show. It's really, it's really exciting. I think it's like, you know, it's something between like the Indian Bridgerton and, uh, and Shit's Creek. <laughs> oh my God. Are you kidding me right now? That's like the best combo ever. <laughs> I know. <right? laughs> One of my first interviews was with Lisa Ray. I was a production assistant 23 years ago on Cal Penn's and her, they were on a movie set together for six months in Austin. Which movie was that? <laughs> I think it went straight to YouTube. It was called The Arrangement. Oh my God. And then I think they changed it to Ball and Chain. And it was Purva Bedi, Cal Penn, Lisa Ray, <laughs> Sunil. God, I forgot Sunil's last name. Anyways, it was this whole team of Indian Americans that were first getting on the scene. Yeah. And I was a production assistant for six months on there. I had the biggest crush on Cal Penn. I was like, why doesn't he love me? And then 23 <laughs> years later, I interviewed him on the podcast. I was like, okay, I get it now. I was like, yeah. turning on all my charm. I didn't understand, but now I, I feel better. I so in love with Cal. And then, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was like, why him. is he rejecting me? I shaved my <laughs> legs. I don't understand. But I'm at peace with it finally. So yes, you finally awesome. That's exciting. D does your daughter get to go with you anywhere? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's exciting, and yeah, it'll be really cool. It's it's super fun. It's fun to watch. Like we're just doing auditions now, and I'm just like so happy just seeing new talent and new faces and new. You know, it's just fun. It's really it's exciting. That's exciting. Well, congrats. That's amazing. I I lived there for a couple of years. And oh, where'd that, you live? So. I did India twice. I lived in Bombay once. So my first job was at Enron, which oddly didn't work out. 
I was just, I was like, why am I like shredding papers? So I lived in Bombay for a year because as you know, I have, I'm a lawyer, shockingly, but I have this creative side that I needed to get out. So went there before law school. I was a backup Bollywood dancer for one of the pop stars. It was back in 2002 when pop stars were like separating from the Bollywood scene. Oh and my God. I was really, really, really bad. But they, uh, my friend was like in charge of it. So they they got me on there. Then I was uh, working for Radio FM. I was just picking up like collars. I was just trying to do everything. I, I lived with this awesome. TV star. Yeah. I was like doing the bander life. I was, and then my parents were like, get the fuck back here now. Yeah. And then moved back there in 2009 with my husband for his, we, he was with Pepsi, but we did uh, international rotations. And we're like, can we go to India? They're like, sure. So we did Delhi for a year and a half and then Bangalore for a year and a half. Oh my God, that's amazing. Yeah. He's Indian American too, right? He's Indian American, yeah. He's from yeah. LA. He's from LA. And so, that's um, so crazy. I got to, I did the fashion scene. I worked at, I was writing for Vogue India and Traveler. And I worked with exclusively in a bunch of uh, our Indian Americans from New York started it. So I worked with them. Yeah, I just was like, so basically, I don't know why I went to law school. I practiced for three years and then, you know. I'm here now. It's, it's important because now fine. you can negotiate all your own contracts. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I know you have to go soon. I want to do a quick fast round. So first thing that comes to your head. Oh, okay. How do you want to be remembered by the people around you? Oh, that's such a good question. How do we want to be remembered by the people around me as a, I guess as like kind, funny, generous, and smart. <laughs> who would be your ultimate collaboration for 2024 that you haven't like reached out to or talked to yet wow that list is so big there's just so many exciting artists that i've been wanting to collaborate with who are now finally at a level where everybody will let us collaborate <laughs> right um, right so it feels like there's just such a wealth of artists now but one that I will say is probably unexpected that I've not reached out to, but I've written a project about and for it would be Madonna. <laughs> I've heard of her. <laughs> I, 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 well, at some point, because you have to go, I, have, I do have a Madonna story. It's pretty oh, good. I pretty always good. want it. My top two celebrity stories are Madonna and Michael Jordan. And Ooh. they're pretty solid. Like... I, we could have probably a drink and a half and I, I would get through it. So one day. Oh my gosh. Okay. If this all goes awry, if this directing, producing, even acting thing goes to shit, what else would you be doing? At this point, I would probably just be like really enjoying my kids and just be yeah. like really happy, like trying to I dive like 100% into that mom life and see what that's like. <laughs> it's always like the thing I'm balancing and, and being torn away from or, or not being able to do more of or not doing because I, you know, have to do it. So I'm curious what it would be like in some ways, but only because I've gotten to do this, you know, like yeah. if I've never gotten to do this, I could not do that. But maybe you'd be changing like wallpaper or something. Yeah, no, no, and that is, I'm not strong at that. Like that is not my. I love it. No, I actually don't change it. I feel like if you were a stay-at-home mom, you would end up writing a book. That's what I think. I'd probably write a book. I'd, yeah, I'd write a book, or I would try to get paid to be like a travel writer or a spa reviewer. Those would be that would be the fantasy job. <laughs> I love it. Reviewer, that would be the fantasy job. I'm gonna add to that. If I had to, I would be like a mattress reviewer. 
And <laughs> <laughs> that'd be good, right? I don't want to do that because a lot of mattresses suck and I don't want to sleep on it. This is but true. Like, it's rare to find a really bad spot, like especially it could be great. Like, okay, let's be more specific. A luxury spa reviewer. Yeah. I was just about to say yeah. a luxury mattress reviewer. Luxury hotel spa reviewer. <laughs> luxury everything reviewer forever. Just yeah, whatever like, is luxury. Just luxury reviewer. Like, <laughs> yeah. We just have to write reviews on whether this was luxurious enough or not. Yeah. I <laughs> look, if you start that, I can help you out. I'm gonna I would like to go. do that and I'd like it to be a company that these other that these luxury places really care about their opinion. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like not just like niches luxury review where they're like, whatever dumbass. Like <laughs> We would be the happiest motherfuckers on earth. Let me just tell you. <laughs> I think that's the best answer. Luxury spa reviewer. Yeah. <laughs> and we would look so good. It would be amazing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. Love it. We wouldn't even need lighting. We'd be good. No. no. Or like a latest sports car reviewer. <laughs> like, these are my backup jobs. These are totally realistic backup jobs. All like, of it. This is actually my favorite answer of this question of all time. So I'm just going to take it I and run with thought it. about it. <laughs> See, now you know. And also, I think you can do it. Uh, luxury products review. Luxury products. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. I'm really into this reviewing of luxury. <laughs> let's connect in about five years and see where we're at. And, <laughs> um, and, and let's make this happen. If you're still like with the same wallpaper and I'm still with the empty audio room, Let's yeah, talk. Yeah. Let's talk. Okay. Okay. <laughs> last question. Give me the plot line for your dream movie. Plot line for my dream movie? No way, man. That's oh, like man. That's my dream movie. I'm writing that already. <laughs> are, you writing, are you writing that already? That's amazing. <laughs> that's awesome. Congrats. Well, that's a big deal, right? Yeah. We got to write our dream movie. Somebody else will. That's awesome. <laughs> well, that's all I got for you. My, I have a ton more. I was going to ask you about dating and shaving, but you can tell me about that later. It's fine. Yeah, right. Dating was really easy. I was not allowed to date. No dating. Not allowed. But looking back, I'm going to do that for my kids too. I'm going to say you're not allowed to date because I think what seemed oppressive was actually very freeing because it freed me from the heartache of high school dating because I just wasn't allowed to. So when nobody asked me to prom, it was because they all know I'm not allowed to go. Okay, I'm sorry. I have to interrupt you, yeah, Nisha. We are definitely cousins. 100%. Because I, I'm literally saying the same thing. I'm like, I was not allowed to date. And I think I'm going to do the same thing with my kids. And all my friends are like, you can't do that. Blah, blah. I was like, I don't care if it's 2023 or whatever no, it is. No, like, I'm not allowed to date. Focus on our studies and date in college. And also, <laughs> what a waste of time dating in high school. I had so much fun. I, I played tennis and had fun with my friends. Yeah. It was That's amazing. What, what a waste of time, time otherwise. Get into college. And, yeah. like, <laughs> and by the way, I kind of waited till my senior year to date in college. So I'm fine with that too. But I also was a little slow on the take of everything. Yes, it's true. <laughs> so that's a whole other story. But I love that you said that because I kind of believe in it too. Me too. You know what the key is? Do not let them shave or wax. Just throwing it out there. That's true because then there's no dating. Yeah, that, that's just not not going to happen. And then they can go to prom with a married guy like I did, which is a whole other story. So <laughs> I couldn't even get asked by a single guy, Nisha. This is my problems, all right? 
I, this is my therapy sessions. <laughs> I want to see your prom picture. Mine was like full unibrow, hairy everywhere. Oh, I'll change it. I'll, I'll, you know what? If I find it, I'm going to post it on this episode and just be like, all right, Nisha, this is for you. This is why I love though. I love the new generation because they're like, yeah, I love a unibrow. They're like, bring it. I know. We're going with our oily hair and our unibrows and they're like, I mean, right. oily hair is in, dude. It's what makes it grow. I have I put thel in my hair all the time now because it's all shedding. Now it's like nobody's gonna make fun of us though. <laughs> I know. Seriously. God. We all need each other like 30 years ago, basically. I know. It's okay. We're going through therapy now. It's all good. Yes, totally. <laughs> well, thank you, Nisha. I know you're crazy busy. Everybody getting therapy. <laughs> Everyone getting therapy. Nisha and I are starting a new company called Luxury Now. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll work on the name and our kids are never dating so i think that's a summary of the whole podcast episode i think so too and it's a pretty good one pretty yeah. good one. I, I, agree. Right I agree <laughs> um when do you head to india january okay awesome well i will keep you posted i'll ask jake for your i need a headshot but i'll ask him all that and i'll keep him posted on the date and you're the best love you thank you for love doing you. this thank you so much thanks for yes good luck with everything and let's be in touch Yes, for sure. Okay, take care. Bye. Tuckered Out is hosted by me, Ami Tucker. This episode is produced by Jeannie Media with Jeannie Saraswathi, Ashley Tuff, Micah Sweetman, Hans Andres, and Laura Radescu. You can follow me at Tuckered Out Podcast on Instagram. And please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you get your podcasts.